द लॉ स्कूल ऑफ अमेरिका इन द म्यूजिक इंडस्ट्री is the illegal practice of payment to commercial radio in which the song is presented as being part of the normal day's broadcast without announcing that there has been consideration paid in cash or in kind for its airplay adjacent to the recording's broadcast under US law a radio station can play a specific song in exchange for money but this must be disclosed on the air as being sponsored airtime the term has come to refer to any undisclosed payment made to cast a product in a favorable light such as obtaining positive reviews Some radio stations report spins of the newest and most popular songs to industry publications. The number of times the songs are played can influence the perceived popularity of a song. The term payola is a combination of pay and ola, a common suffix of product names in the early 20th century, such as pianola, victrola, amberola, crayola, rockola, shinola, or brands such as the radio equipment manufacturer Motorola. Payola has come to mean the payment of a bribe in commerce and in law to say or do a certain thing against the rules of law, but more specifically a commercial bribe. The FCC defines payola as a violation of the sponsorship identification rule. History. In earlier eras, there was not much public scrutiny of the reason songs became hits. The ad agencies which had sponsored NBC's radio/TV show Your Hit Parade for 20 years refused to reveal the specific methods that were used to determine top hits. only stating generally that they were based on readings of radio requests, sheet music sales, dance hall favorites and jukebox tabulations. Attempts to create a code to stop payola were met with mainly lukewarm silence by publishers. Prosecution for payola in the 1950s was in part a reaction of the traditional music establishment against newcomers. Hit radio was a threat to the wages of song pluggers. Radio hits also threatened old revenue streams. For example, by the middle of the 1940s, Three quarters of the records produced in the USA went into jukeboxes. Still, in the 1950s, independent record companies or music publishers frequently used payola to promote rock and roll on American radio. It promoted cultural diversity, and disc jockeys were less inclined to indulge their own personal and racial biases. Alan Freed, a disc jockey and early supporter of rock and roll, and also widely credited for actually coining the term, had his career and reputation greatly harmed by a payola scandal. Dick Clark's early career was nearly derailed by a payola scandal, but he avoided trouble by selling his stake in a record company and cooperating with authorities. Attempts were made to link all payola with rock and roll music. In 1976, inner-city urban soul DJ Frankie Crocker was indicted in a payola scandal, causing him to leave NY Radio, where his influence was greatest. The charges were later dropped, and he returned to NY, hosting MTV's Video Jukebox. The amount of money involved is largely unpublished. However, one DJ, Phil Lind of Chicago's Wade, disclosed in congressional hearings that he had taken $22,000 to play a record. The issue was featured in a 1978 episode of WKRP in Cincinnati, where Johnny Fever's morning show replacement, when Johnny left to take a new job in Los Angeles, was caught taking cocaine as a bribe to play certain records from a label with which he was associated. Congressional payola investigations The congressional payola investigations occurred in 1959 after the United States Senate began investigating the payola scandal. Among those thought to have been involved were DJ Alan Freed and television personality Dick Clark. The term congressional payola investigations refers to investigations by the House Subcommittee on Legislative Oversight into payola, the practice of record promoters paying DJs or radio programmers to play their label's songs. 
Payola can refer to monetary rewards or other types of reimbursement and is a tool record labels use to promote certain artists. Other forms of payola include making arrangements to purchase certain amounts of advertising in exchange for staying on a station's playlist, forcing bands to play station-sponsored concerts for little or no money in order to stay in a station's good graces, and paying for stations to hold meet-the-band contests, in exchange for airtime for one of the label's newer, lesser-known bands. The first major payola investigation occurred in the early 1960s. DJ Alan Freed, who was uncooperative in committee hearings, was fired as a result. Dick Clark also testified before the committee, but survived, partially due to the fact that he had divested himself of ownership interest in all of his music industry holdings. After the initial investigation, radio DJs were stripped of the authority to make programming decisions, and payola became a misdemeanor offense. Programming decisions became the responsibility of station program directors. As a result, the process of persuading stations to play certain songs was simplified. Instead of reaching numerous DJs, record labels only had to connect with one station program director. Labels turned to independent promoters to circumvent allegations of payola. This practice grew more and more widespread until a 1986 NBC News investigation called the New Payola instigated another round of congressional investigations. With the creation of Napster and other now illegal music sharing websites, the power of the independent promoters began to decline. Labels once more began dealing with stations directly. In 2002, investigations by the office of then New York District Attorney Elliot Spitzer uncovered evidence that executives at Sony BMG Music Labels had made deals with several large commercial radio chains. In July 2005, the company acknowledged their improper promotional practices and agreed to pay a $10 million fine. Modus operandi. Third-party loophole. A different form of payola has been used by the record industry through the loophole of being able to pay a third-party or independent record promoters, indies, not to be confused with independent record labels, who will then go and promote those songs to radio stations. Offering the radio stations promotion payments, the independents get the songs that their clients, record companies, want on the playlists of radio stations around the country. This newer type of payola was an attempt to sidestep FCC regulations. Since the independent intermediaries were the ones actually paying the stations, it was thought that their inducements did not fall under the payola rules, so a radio station need not report them as paid promotions. Former New York State Attorney General Elliot Spitzer prosecuted payola-related crimes in his jurisdiction. His office settled out of court with Sony BMG Music Entertainment in July 2005. Warner Music Group in November 2005 and Universal Music Group in May 2006. The three conglomerates agreed to pay $10 million, $5 million, and $12 million respectively to New York State nonprofit organizations that will fund music education and appreciation programs. Emmy remains under investigation. Concern about contemporary forms of payola prompted an investigation during which the FCC established firmly that the loophole was still a violation of the law. In 2007, four companies, CBS Radio, Citadel, Clear Channel, and Entercom, settled on paying $12.5 million in fines and accepting tougher restrictions than the legal requirements for three years, although no company admitted any wrongdoing. Because of the increased legal scrutiny, some larger radio companies, including industry giant Clear Channel, now flatly refuse to have any contact with independent promoters. Clear Channel Radio through iHeartRadio launched a program called On The Verge that required the stations to play a given song at least 150 times in order to give a new artist exposure. 
brand managers at the top of the clear channel chain, after listening to hundreds of songs and filtering them down to about five or six favorites from various formats, send those selections to program directors across the country. These program directors vote on which ones they think radio listeners will like the most. One of the songs that benefited from the exposure was Iggy Azalea's Fancy. Tinashe's Two On, Anthony Lewis' Candy Rain, and Chene Iko's The Worst, among others, have been featured on the program, however, those failed to duplicate Azalea's chart hit. Tom Pullman, president of national programming platforms for the company, stated that the acts selected are based solely on the quality of their music and not on label pressure. On Spotify, labels can pay for tracks to appear in user playlists as sponsored songs. It is possible to opt out of it using a setting. As a money laundering scheme. In Mexico, South America and some regions of the U.S. southern border, it is common to hear the sudden appearance of new artists, mainly in folk radio stations, who are not known in the music industry, have no previous career and with no explanation of where they come from. These music groups and singers start to appear consistently on radio, television and public broadcasts with a strong promotion of their concerts. This happens for a fixed amount of time, and in the same sudden way they appear, they stop their promotion and disappear from the music scene or change their stage name. Such artists are commonly manufactured by producers of dubious origin, who pay payola and do events in order to launder money from drug trafficking, prostitution or other illegal operations. Criticism The Federal Communications Commission, FCC, and the Communications Act of 1934 both have strict requirements and rules regarding the issue of payola. Both the FCC and the Act demand that employees of broadcast stations, program producers, program suppliers and others who, in exchange for airing material, have accepted or agreed to receive payments, services or other valuable consideration must disclose this fact. Disclosure of compensation provides broadcasters the information they need to let their audiences know if material was paid for, and by whom. But even with these requirements in place, big-time record companies have found loopholes to continue the practice legally. The reason why record companies have managed to find relatively big loopholes in an otherwise complex and strict document is because of the wording. According to the current regulations in place, it is still considered legal to pay to play a particular song on the radio. The only hitch is that the broadcaster has to reveal who paid. In addition, the disclosures must be from DJ to station manager to program director and upwards. The loose wording has created a loophole that makes it easier for wealthy record company officials to pay the DJs large sums of money to play certain songs a certain number of times at a given time during the day. The loophole has created a gray market, one in which shady, quasi-legal deals take place, and independent artists lose out more often than not. The loophole has made it sure that independent artists will be isolated from mainstream media. And a current example of this is the lengths Macklemore and Ryan Lewis went to get their music heard. Because Lewis and Macklemore belonged to an independent label, they feared payola laws would interfere with their airtime. So, they hired an independent arm of Warner Music Group, the Alternative Distribution Alliance, which helps independent acts get their stuff on radio. Zach Quillen, manager of Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, discussed how they paid the Alliance a flat monthly fee to help promote the album. One side effect of the bigness of the law and the creation of the loophole is the expansion of the concept at the hands of online music sharing websites. In 2009, the website Django created a plan to do payola legally by saying they have been paid to play the songs. For as little as $30, a band can buy 1,000 plays on the music streaming service, slotted in between established artists. 
The artists themselves choose what other music they like to be played next to. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Pickpocketing is a form of larceny that involves the stealing of money or other valuables from the person or a victim's pocket without them noticing the theft at the time. It may involve considerable dexterity and a knack for misdirection. A thief who works in this manner is known as a pickpocket. As an occupation, pickpockets and other thieves, especially those working in teams, sometimes apply distraction, such as asking a question or bumping into the victim. These distractions sometimes require sleight of hand, speed, misdirection and other types of skills. Pickpockets may be found in any crowded place around the world. However, Barcelona and Rome were recently singled out as being particularly dangerous pickpocket havens. Thieves have been known to operate in high-traffic areas such as mass transit stations, even boarding subway trains so they can use the distractions of crowds and sudden stop-and-go movements from the train to steal from others. As soon as the thieves have what they want, they simply get off at the next stop leaving the victim unable to figure out who robbed them and when. As entertainment, pickpocketing skills are employed by some magicians as a form of entertainment, either by taking an item from a spectator or by returning it without them knowing they had lost it. Bora, arguably the most famous stage pickpocket of all time, became the highest-paid European performer in circuses during the 1950s. For 60 years he was billed as the king of pickpockets and encouraged his son, Charlie, to follow in his cunning trade, his offspring being billed as the prince of pickpockets. Henri Cassagy, a French-Tunisian illusionist, acted as technical advisor on Robert Bresson's 1959 film Pickpocket and appeared as instructor and accomplice to the main character. British entertainer James Friedman created the pickpocket sequences for the 2005 film Oliver Twist directed by Roman Polanski. American illusionist David Avedon featured pickpocketing as his trademark act for more than 30 years and promoted himself as a daring pickpocket with dashing finesse and the country's premier exhibition Pickpocket, one of the few masters in the world of this underground art. According to Thomas Black, an American illusionist who holds several world records, it has become more difficult nowadays to pickpocket both in the streets and on the stage because the general population wears less clothes. In 2015 an artist hired a pickpocket to distribute sculptures at Fries Art Fair in New York. Methods Pickpocketing often requires different levels of skill, relying on a mixture of sleight of hand and misdirection. To get the proper misdirect or distraction, pickpockets will normally use the distracting environment that crowds offer or create situations using accomplices. Pickpocketing still thrives in Europe and other countries that are high in tourism. It's most common in areas with large crowds. Sometimes pickpockets put signs up that warn tourists to watch for pickpockets. This causes people to worry and quickly check if their valuables are still on them, ergo showing pickpockets exactly where their valuables are. Once a pickpocket finds a person they want to steal from, often called a mark or a victim, the pickpocket will then create or look for an opportunity to steal. The most common methods used by modern-day pickpockets are Driving by and snatching a passerby's items this method is common in cities like London where mopeds are a common way to travel. Offering to help someone with their luggage, then proceeding to disappear in a crowded area. This method works well because it gives the victim a false sense of trust with the pickpocketer. The next technique involves a team of three or more people in a crowded area. After finding their mark, two of the pickpockets slow down while walking in front of their mark appearing as a lost couple. Meanwhile, the mark is stuck behind them and their accomplice goes through the mark's bag unnoticed. Using large crowds where there is a small doorway, like that in trains, forcing the crowd to squeeze together to get through. 
A pickpocket uses this opportunity to stick their hands into people's pockets and go unnoticed. Using a stooge, a fake couple, or group goes up and asks the mark for help. For example, it can be to take their photo, hold their bag, or just simply asking for directions and getting them to hold a map. As this is happening their partner is going through the mark's bags while they are distracted helping. Using a child to pickpocket or as a distraction is common in many countries. The bump is the most famous of all the ways and is often used in movies. It is where a person on the street bumps into you and you don't notice anything is stolen until much later. The bump usually requires expert sleight of hand. The most common one is the slash and grab where the pickpocket cuts a purse or bag strap without the mark's knowledge and makes off with the bag. They can then take the contents and leave behind the bag in any form of identification in the trash or a back alley. Famous Pickpockets Famous fictional pickpockets include the Artful Dodger and Fagin, characters from the Charles Dickens novel Oliver Twist. Famous true-life historical pickpockets include the Irish prostitute Chicago May, who was profiled in books, Mary Frith, nicknamed Mall Cut Purse, the Gubbins Band of Highwaymen, and Cutting Ball, a notorious Elizabethan thief. George Barrington's escapades, arrests, and trials, were widely chronicled in the late 18th century London press. Pickpocketing in the 17th and 18th centuries The 17th and 18th centuries saw a significant number of men and women pickpockets, operating in public and or private places and stealing different types of items. Some of those pickpockets were caught and prosecuted for their theft, however, in most cases, they managed to avoid punishment, whether they were skillful enough not to get caught or they were acquitted in court. Although we refer to them as pickpockets today, this is not necessarily how they were called in the 17th century. They were sometimes referred to as cut purses, as can be seen in some 17th century ballads. At the time, pockets were not yet sewn to clothes, as they are today. This means that pockets were a little purse that people wore close to their body. This was especially true for women, since men's pockets were sewn into the linings of their coats. Women's pockets were worn beneath a piece of clothing, and not as opposed to pouches or bags hanging outside their clothes. These external pockets were still in fashion until the mid-19th century. Gender Pickpocketing in the 18th century was committed by both men and women. Looking at prosecuted cases of pickpocketing, it appears that there were more female defendants than male. Along with shoplifting, pickpocketing was the only type of crime committed by more women than men. It seems that in the 18th century, most pickpockets stole out of economic needs, they were often poor and did not have any economic support and unemployment was the single most important cause of poverty, leading the most needy ones to pickpockets. In most cases, pickpockets operated depending on the opportunities they got. If they saw someone wearing a silver watch or with a handkerchief bulging out of their pocket, the pickpockets took the item. This means that the theft was, in such cases, not premeditated. However, some pickpockets did work as a gang, in which cases they planned thefts, even though they could not be sure of what they would get. Defoe's Mall Flanders gives several examples of how pickpockets worked as a team or on their own, when the eponymous character becomes the thief out of need. The prosecutions against pickpockets at the Old Bailey between 1780 and 1808 show that male pickpockets were somewhat younger than female ones. 72% of men pickpockets convicted at the time were aged from under 20 to 30, while 72% of women convicted of picking pockets were aged between 20 and 40. One reason that may explain why women pickpockets were older is that most of the women pickpockets were prostitutes, this explains why very few women under 20 years old were convicted for picking pockets. At the end of the 18th century, 76% of women defendants were prostitutes, and as a result, 
the victims of pickpockets were more often men than women. In most cases, these prostitutes would lay with men, who were frequently drunk, and take advantage of the situation to steal from these clients. Men who were robbed by prostitutes often chose not to prosecute the pickpockets, since they would have had to acknowledge their immoral behavior. The few men who decided to prosecute prostitutes for picking their pockets were often mocked in court, and very few prostitutes ended up being declared fully guilty. The men who were prosecuted for picking pockets and who were under 20 years old were often children working in gangs, under the authority of an adult who trained them to steal. The children involved in these gangs were orphans, either because of having been abandoned or because their parents had died, and the whole relationship they had with the adult ruling the gang and the other children was that of a surrogate family. Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist provides a good example of how orphans were recruited and turned into street criminals. Methods of Operation and Targets Male and female pickpockets tended to operate in different locations, 80% of men operated in public areas while 78% of women operated in private places. This can be explained by the fact that most female pickpockets were prostitutes, robbing their victims in their lodging after having laid with them. Male pickpockets, on the other hand, tended to operate in public places because they did not have the opportunity that prostitutes had. The fact that men and women did not operate in the same places led to them stealing different types of items. Men stole mostly handkerchiefs, because they were one of the easiest items to take from someone without them noticing it. Women tended to steal watches, some pickpockets also stole watches in public places, but it was more difficult, and begs with money in them. When defending themselves in court, prostitutes often argued that the money had been a gift from the victim and managed to be acquitted, as the men prosecuting them were often drunk at the time of the theft and were not taken seriously by the court. Prosecution In the eyes of British law, pickpocketing was considered a capital offense from 1565 on, this meant that it was punishable by hanging. However, for the crime to be considered as a capital offense, the stolen item had to be worth more than 12 pennies, otherwise it was considered to be petty larceny, which meant that the thief would not be hanged. The 18th century law also stated that only the thief could be prosecuted, any accomplice or receiver of the stolen item could not be found guilty of the crime, this meant that, if two people were indicted together, and there was not clear proof as to which one made the final act of taking, neither should be found guilty. Moreover, in order to be able to prosecute someone for pickpocketing, the victim of the theft had to not be aware that they were being robbed. In 1782, a case at the Old Bailey made it clear that this was supposed to prevent people who had been robbed while they were drunk to prosecute the defendant. In most of the cases that meant men who had been robbed by prostitutes, the victims of pickpockets who were drunk at the time of the theft were considered to be partially responsible for being robbed. Even though pickpockets were supposed to be hanged for their crime, this punishment, in fact, rarely happened, 61% of women accused of picking pockets were acquitted and those who were not acquitted often managed to escape the capital sentence, as only 6% of defendants accused of pickpocketing between 1780 and 1808 were hanged. In the cases of prostitutes being accused of having pickpocketed male prosecutors, the jury's verdict was very often more favorable to the woman defendant than to the man prosecuting her. Men who had been lying with prostitutes were frowned upon by the court. One of the reasons was that they had chosen to take off their clothes, they were also drunk most of the time, so they were responsible for being robbed. The other reason is that it was considered bad for a man to mix with a prostitute, which is why in many cases there was no prosecution, the victim was too ashamed of admitting that he had been with a prostitute. In those cases, since the jury was often inclined to despise the prosecutor and decide with the defendant, 
When they did not completely acquit the woman they often reached a partial verdict and this mostly meant transportation to America, that is the case for Mal Flanders, and to Australia later on. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. (laughs) 